Welcome to the Montague Reporter Podcast. My name is Sarah Brown Anson, and I'm the host and producer of the Montague Reporter Podcast. My name is Mike Jackson, and I'm the managing editor of the Montague Reporter newspaper. So, Mike, I got my newspaper delivered to my apartment building last night. Thank you. And is that a small victory? Yes. <laughs> and they looked at it, and there's this really cute puppy face smiling at me it's a cute chocolate lab puppy who's about five weeks old why why was his picture on the paper well if you hadn't already been a subscriber you would be now this dog is um is going to be serving as a comfort dog in gil montague schools going to be accompanying the, the school resource officer the school police officer and it's had to go through a lot of hoops uh, for approval. It's been approved by the, the Montague Select Board. The town is going to own this dog. So what does it mean? What is this concept of a comfort dog? We had a quote in the article from Christine Limoges, who's the director of teaching and learning in the district, saying the animals relieve students' stress, help kids learn to read, and even boost test scores and attendance. And then the idea is also, um, you know, this dog would be shared with the community if there's a a traumatic event hap- that happens in the community, um, it can be on hand as, as a therapy dog. Greenfield has two therapy dogs already, and uh, Officer Minor, who is going to be taking care of this dog, told the school committee this week that he's been talking with his counterparts in Greenfield um, and learning how comfort dog programs run. Officer Minor came to the meeting on Tuesday and uh, talked a little bit about what the comfort dog would do um, and how how the agreement between the district and the town would work and everyone on the school committee seemed to think it was a great idea and uh, it was unanimously approved so on march 16th um, we have been told mac the the labrador puppy is going to be sworn in um, as a as a comfort dog at a montague select board meeting so he'll officially be part of the police force this dog's a cop officer minor was uh so kind as to share this photo of the dog. Um, it was taken by uh, his daughter, Caitlin Miner, who's also um, the student representative to the school committee. And I- I'm just really grateful for, it feels a little bit cynical to, to put a puppy on the on the front page of the newspaper. But, you know, I think it's actually a big story and it's not bad to have a puppy on the front page of the newspaper. Who said it was bad, Mike? <laughs> I think I feel self-conscious about about it, you know, as as feeling like a a move to sell papers or something. Oh, no. It's just a reward for all of us to see a cute face of a non-human animal. And uh, definitely thank you to Officer Minor and to Caitlin uh, for for sharing this photo. Okay, so the next topic we're going to talk about is retroactive pay raises. Pay raises in Irving. Maybe I should just frame it as pay raises. Pay raises in Irving. Yeah, this is another story that made the cover of the paper this week. And it was in the February 13th issue as well. Yep, this is a big thing that the Irving Select Board and Finance Committee have been battling through. And Katie Nolan um, is regularly reporting um, on the Irving Select Board meetings and has been has been for years um, and uh, I think it's an interesting story even though it's pretty dry yeah so what's the deal with the different costs of pay raises it all seems kind of like a, like I'm wading through it right and I, I think it's the kind of thing where we're 
the feeling of wading through the the feeling of difficulty and density is in itself kind of part of the story. Here's a situation where Irving had the sense that its town employees weren't making what their counterparts in other towns would. This is important if you want to keep people on the job and not continually be training new people. So for sure. Um, in order to, to try to be as fair as possible, they, they brought in an outside consultant, this group from UMass Boston, to do a study and make recommendations and kind of said, okay, we'll go along with, with what they recommend for, for competitive pay locally for these different positions. And at town meeting last spring, the people of Irving agreed to allocate $50,000 in the current fiscal year to cover whatever pay raises were, were deemed to be fair. So that was going to set in on July 1st. And there were also, it sounds like a few instances where people had other reasons to be receiving bumps up in pay who forewent them because you know the idea was everyone was going to wait until this study w- was through. What ended up happening, though, was that the study found that Irving's town employees were, were paid even, even worse than was thought. So the cost of giving these raises retroactive to July 1st um, was, was a lot higher than, than what the money that was set aside. So that that's kind of the conundrum. So they're working backwards from there. They don't have to give everyone that raise, but they did kind of say that they would. And at this point, everyone's trying to figure out what the most equitable way to get everyone onto this new pay scale is. And this is an example of, of the kind of story that is, you know, a, a detailed story of what's going on in, in the public sector and one of our five coverage towns, but I do think that it's generally interesting. Um, I think if I were uh, someone working for any of the towns, you know, this is the kind of thing I'd be really looking at how this works. There's a kernel here that's that's definitely of broader interest. So put it on the front page along with the comfort dog. I would just add one thing, which is that it sounds like uh, Katie Nolan, our reporter, has been sitting through some some very long Irving Select Board meetings. So if you thought that this article was long and dry, uh, Katie's on the front lines out there. They meet every Monday night. (laughs) Yeah, it seems tough. It even said that they talked about the mechanics of how to implement these pay raises for two hours, over two hours. Yep. So if anyone wants to do that, get in touch. <laughs> We're really selling it here. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Katie could use uh, use an apprentice. Mike, your editorial this week focused on Bernie Sanders in anticipation of Super Tuesday and the vote in the Democratic primaries coming up this coming week. Yeah, this is the the lead editorial on page A2. Generally, this is the only section of the paper where you'll get, you know, national or or international news coming in. I think that one of the the biggest things that everyone's talking about out there has been the Democratic primary, and it feels a little odd not to be addressing it. At the same time, I've had the policy that the Montague Reporter doesn't make endorsements of any candidates for office. So, you know, I'm really always trying to look at if there are things to observe about the overall dynamic that is happening within races. That's generally my focus editorially. This week, I ended up looking back four years at February 2016 to see what I had written. Um, I think between the New Hampshire primary and the Nevada caucus and it was in actually a very narrow window of time when Bernie Sanders had a slight delegate lead in that primary. And 
at the time I talked about kind of what I was perceiving as, as the division of uh, the Democratic voter base into two opposing camps and, and some of the things that were coming from that. Fast forward four years, and I think it's it's a dynamic that everyone is much more familiar with, this kind of intra-party struggle. So what I did was half of the editorial was quoting from four years ago and then kind of gave some additional commentary. It's interesting layout, too, because you have the dates at the top and a line through the middle, so you can kind of compare the perspective four years ago with what's happening today. Yeah, it took some artistic license, but it ended up working well on the page. And when those weeks when you don't have an editorial, how do you decide you're not going to write one? Well, so, okay, this is really, really looking into the behind the curtain here. These editorials are, are often one of the very last things that I'm doing uh, before the paper goes to the printer. Sometimes I'll write them in advance, but more often it's it's something that, you know, is kind of happening at, at 4 or 5 a.m. Oh, my God. Yep. So how can you even write at 4 or 5 in the morning? It does happen. And some weeks, though, you know, I, I have this task still on my list to cross off. And also I'm having trouble fitting content into the A section that needs to be in. So some weeks I end up sacrificing having a full lead editorial space and I'll do some runovers or, you know, guest editorial, things like that on that page instead. It's kind of in some ways for, for me a win-win as a, as a worker um, to be able to fit the text and also um, not have to do it. But I do get feedback. People tend to notice when, when there isn't a lead editorial. So I knew I had to do one this week because I think the last couple I'd skipped. Yeah, the last two. Yeah. Yep. I was wondering if it was ever going to come back. But, well, of course I knew it would. I got a text from my mother asking me if I was okay after she saw that I had skipped editorials for two weeks. Oh, my God. Does she listen to this? I don't know. But for the record, I'm okay. So my non sequitur this week is the awesome headlines. And who writes the headlines, Mike? Well, sometimes writers will submit a headline with their article as they file it. The problem with that is that it doesn't always fit on the page in the right space. I, my understanding is that um, uh, at the peak of, of newspaper civilization, there used to be special uh, headline editors at the, at the largest newspapers who would kind of walk around the newsroom, you know, with probably a cigar dangling from their lips and peer over people's shoulders and compose the headlines. And then go down to the press and, like literally assemble the headline yeah it's a kind of a industrial skill of composition because you're always trying to do a number of things simultaneously with a headline Mm -hmm. you're trying to trying to grab the reader's attention Um, you're trying to fit in a certain space if it's a multiple line headline ideally the first line should kind of stand for itself which is a very special problem set okay so one example that I found, which is probably the best headline of the last couple weeks. Greenfield's date with density, city debates zoning reform. Yep, and this was on, on Samantha Wood's article last week about proposed zoning reform, or I guess two weeks ago. 
Yeah. February 13th. Uh, I wrote this one, um, thought I was being clever. And then after it was, it was already on the press, um, I found out that there was actually a Simpsons episode called Lisa's Date with Density. Never heard of it. <laughs> well, so, some people had it. This was not uh, intended as a, as a Simpsons reference. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes we put puns out there. Uh, I kind of enjoy that, that real, you know, New York Post tabloid style headline uh, i know not everyone does but it's it's fun it's a, it's a way to kind of uh you know have a little bit of enjoyment out of the job hold on i might have one of those this one might fall in that category you let me know ganja farmers forget to show up septic is latest meeting house snag <laughs> did that grab you yes yeah of course this is from the wendell select board meeting yep a couple issues back and just for the record uh at the next meeting the ganja farmers did show up and this one is really funny and stood out to me because this the week that this headline ran, I was in Gill with Annie distributing the paper. Gill might prefer loose cows to uptight loose cow bylaws. It's true. Do you have a non sequitur, Mike? I do, and it actually also relates to that editorial. After I had sent all the pages to the printer, I... I happened to look at, at the PDFs that I had sent, and I realized that I had made a pretty embarrassing typo in the lead editorial and had to call the press and uh, ask if they had made the plates already, and, and fortunately they hadn't, and it was kind of a, a hold-the-press moment. Um, we're printed uh, by the Hampshire Gazette. The people who work there are all super professional, super helpful, and they bailed me out, called me back, and uh, let me send a new a new page through, which was a big relief. So, uh, I feel really grateful to have you know, people on the other on the other end of that who do also really care about how newspapers come out. And they make the paper look beautiful every week. They do. Thank you for listening to the Montague Reporter podcast. If you like what we are doing, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. You can also call us at 413-863-8666 to let us know what you think, or email us at podcast at montaguereporter.org. You can buy the Montague Reporter newspaper at a number of local businesses. Um, we have a list of them on our website, montaguereporter.org. You can also subscribe also at montaguereporter.org. Thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for the music. Big thanks to Greenfield Community Television for technical support and equipment. And just one last note, if you catch a typo in the Montague Reporter, email us at podcast.montaguereporter.org and we will have a special on-air gift for you on our podcast.